Well, this morning we'll be studying Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. Let me read those for us. It says, And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and they said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Father, would you use our time as brief as it may be to capture our hearts. And just as we've just sung, Lord, would you be the center of our attention and our affections? So God, lead us by your spirit. Would you teach us? God, let us know you as you are. And would you reveal to us who we are, but most importantly, who we are in light of you, that you might be our praise. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was 15 years old, I woke up in the middle of the night, not feeling great and got up to go get a drink of water. So go into the the bathroom towards the sink. And right when I get to the sink, boom, I pass out straight on the floor, knocking stuff off the the counter, uh, making a ruckus. My parents come rushing in, obviously, uh, to find out what in the world is going wrong. And so really over the course of the next days and weeks and even months, uh, I was in doctor's offices constantly. They're trying to figure out, they, they found out something was wrong with my heart. So I had echocardiograms and EEG, EKG, MRI, CAT scan, the whole deal. Uh, I had to wear a electrode cap to school. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, uh, think a swim cap with wires coming out in every direction, connected to a fanny pack that beeps every 30 seconds. It's hard to make that one look cool as a 15-year-old. And so there I go, they, they were doing constant tests. They come to find out that I had what they call a, a mitral valve prolapse, which is best a 15 year old could understand. Essentially, it was there was a valve that was sticking in my heart, not allowing blood to pass through. Turns out it wasn't crazy uh, dangerous, but there's that moment, right? Those moments where you kind of get bad news, where you're concerned with what might be going on. You're, you're, you're a 15 year old, you think you're unstoppable and all of a sudden you're faced with your own mortality and it begins to be uh, rock your world. Well, in that season, I was invited by some friends to a Young Life camp in Buena Vista, Colorado. And he said, I mean, you've got to come. It's going to be amazing. There's mountain climbing and dating opportunities aplenty. Maybe even a girl that thinks electrode caps actually look cool. You might be in luck. And so there we go. Uh, 500 kids from really around the country. We cram in every night into this room. And there's a guy who stood up in front of the, the room and he told stories about Jesus. And quite honestly, man, I... I was sort of fading in and out. I'm thinking of climbing mountains and which one of these potential dates might I find. And 
there was a moment in that evening, about halfway through that week, where the guy up front said something that literally these words have changed my life from that moment as a 15 year old until this day. And here's what he said. He says, you have a heart problem. And it was as if the whole room cleared out. I'm like, how does he know that I have a heart problem? And he said it again. He goes, you have a heart problem. And it's called sin. And in that moment, it was as if God sort of brought back this curtain, this, this veil that had been over me. See, because I grew up in church. I was a moral kid. I didn't cuss or drink. And I really assumed that sort of God graded on the bell curve. Like I had to be in the top 50%. That was just being humble. I thought I was in the probably the top 5%, but I wanted to be humble. So I was in the top 50. But if God's letting anybody in, I mean, I gotta be in the top percentage. I really had that perspective because I looked around me and I was like, man, I'm more moral than the kids around me. But guess what? When my morality was face to face with my mortality, it was found as insufficient. My life started crumbling. My, the fear started rising, the anxiety started rising. And, and I thought that I could earn my way to the affections of God by more morals. And I didn't know if I could ever do enough. I, I was very fluent in church, but I was gospel deficient. And in that moment, as that, that veil sort of got pulled back, God revealed to me two things. Number one is that I was way more sinful than I would have ever admitted. In the very same moment, I recognized this, that God was very kind and his grace was way more wonderful than I'd ever imagined. And so my hope for us today is that, that God would show us those things. See, God used a, a physical heart problem that I had to show me my real heart problem, which was a heart filled with sin and selfishness. So I've been praying that for you this week, that God would sort of pull back the curtain and show you two things. One is what's really going on in our hearts, but at the very same time, he would show us what's really going on in his heart towards you. And that's what we see uh, here in our text. We see that we each have a heart problem. And so when I, I walked out of that room as a 15 year old and 399 kids, they went and jumped in a pool and had a giant pool party. And I, I walked off by myself and I sat on a boulder looking out across the Buena Vista Valley. And I prayed this, I said, God, God, if this is true, if my heart is broken because of sin, what in the world do I do? What do I do? And we find in our passage today that Jesus is revealing something to us He's revealing that each and every one of us has a heart problem. And so in Matthew 15, that's where we're at today. Three questions that popped to mind when I read this. Number one is what is the heart? Number two, what's the problem with my heart? And number three, what is the solution to the problem with my heart? The heart, the problem, the solution. Let's go. Verse 18 is what we see. Jesus comes and he says this, he says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Now, to understand what in the world Jesus is talking about, uh, he's talking about something specific. When the Bible uses the phrase heart, it's using a specific idea behind what it is saying. Jesus says, your heart and your mouth are connected. Now, obviously he's not thinking anatomically like your esophagus somehow magically goes from your mouth to your heart. No, he's talking about spiritually what is in your heart. Now, when you and I think heart, when somebody uses that idea, we normally think emotions and affections. And so someone sends you 
a heart emoji, what does it mean? They like you or they like something that you said. If they send you a lot of heart emojis, they really like you. They really like what you've said because we think heart and we think emotion. We think affection. We, we sort of separate our, we have two words. We have heart, which means emotion and affection. We have mind, which means intellect and reason and thoughtfulness. We separate those two ideas. And honestly, those ideas sometimes are at odds and even at war with themselves. And so when we say, what is objective truth? Instead of thinking about it from a reasoning perspective, often we think about it from an emotion, an affection. What do I feel is true? How does that truth make me feel? And so these things are at odds with one another. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it is combining what we've separated. The heart is the center of, yes, your emotions and affections, but also your intellect, your reasoning, and your thoughtfulness. The, 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 the mind and the heart are kind of brought together in biblical phrase. And so it is our thoughts and our emotions, our affections and our reasoning, why we do what we do, our motivations, that's who you are. So essentially, what is the heart? It is all that you cherish, all that you value, and all that you trust. It's important, right? Your heart is important to God because it's everything about you. But there's a problem. There's a problem with our hearts. As we read in the scriptures, we go to Genesis chapter six, verse five. It says this, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Jeremiah chapter 17 says it like this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? Romans chapter one, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor God and give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And in our passage today, Matthew 15, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. So church, your heart is all that you value, cherish and trust. It's all of who you are. But yet the Bible tells us there's something busted in our hearts. And so what we cherish, what we value, what we trust, there's brokenness even at that level of who we are. So many of us are asking right now, we're like, man, what in the world? What is wrong with the world? What is going on right now? Why is there so much division and, and discouragement and depression? Why is there so much angst and bitterness and anger in the world? Why are we at odds? Why are relationships being torn apart? What is the problem? And the Bible speaks clearly. The problem is us. The problem is what's going on right here in each and every one of us that we have a heart problem and it's called sin. I love what Oswald Smith, he's a Canadian, he was a Canadian pastor. He says it like this, the, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That each and every one of us has turned inward on our own hearts and whatever reigns and rules in my hearts, that is what comes out in my life and in my mouth. So whatever is the overflow of my heart, that's the mouth, that's what the mouth speaks. Whatever the overflow of my heart, that's what the thumb tweets. And that's why we go online and we see the brokenness in the world because it's coming straight from here. That's what Jesus tells us in verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Essentially, he's saying, look, the problem isn't just out there with them, right? That's what we wanna do. That's what, that's what happened in Adam and Eve. That's what they did. The problem is with them. The woman who you gave me, it's her fault and it's your fault, God. What did Eve do? It's, the, it's Satan's fault. It's always blaming. It's always out there. And so we tend to think, think of the world sort of like, hey, there's good guys and bad guys. Now, there might be better guys and worse guys, but, but the reality is, is that it's not that simple, that all of us are culpable because we sort of have this mentality like, if those people out there would just be more fill in the blank, or if those people over there would just stop being so fill in the blank. What we're doing is we're saying they are the problem, but if they change, then the world would finally have peace. But here's the deal. What in the world are we doing? We're saying essentially, if they would be more like me, then the world would be at peace. If they would start valuing, cherishing, and trusting the things that I value and cherish and trust, then the world would finally be at peace. And so essentially what we're doing is we are deifying our personal desires. We're saying if the world valued and cherished what I value and cherish, then there would be peace. What are we doing? We're saying we are, are God essentially. And then you do that and you multiply that out by every human that exists. And then you wonder, oh, why in the world are we having so many problems? Because we have so many gods. And the Bible comes and says, no, no, no. It's the heart of the human. There is the problem. And so we find our hearts growing inward in self-protection and self-promotion. We deify our own desires and we take hold of the forbidden fruit and we eat of it and we blame others. And in the process, we lose both the garden and God himself. So what in, the, what in the world do we do? What's the solution? How do we move forward with this? Now, in our text, we, we, the Pharisees and Jesus were agreeing and disagreeing. They agreed about two things and they disagreed about one. They actually agreed that the heart was the center of the human. They actually agreed that the heart was defiled. They just disagreed on the solution. So, so the Pharisees came with a particular solution. That's what we see in the context of this argument. Chapter 15, verse one, the Pharisees come to Jesus. Look at this. It says, the Pharisees and the scribes, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So the religious solution is simply was this. They've got to do better. I don't know if you've heard that phrase or someone's tweeted that at you. Hey, you gotta just do better. Like that's the religious solution. Do better, be better, work harder, become more. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were doing their very best to follow a Levitical law, a good law. But in their efforts to follow a law, they, they, they forgot what the whole point of it was. The point of the law was to point to the heart of God. And by following the very law that pointed to, to the heart of God, they lost the heart of God. They, they followed the rules and they lost their souls. That their whole lives were, were aimed at this, but in the very process of trying to do what was right, they found themselves uh, on the other side. The solution was essentially this. The religious solution was just, if I can stay away from enough bad things, then I will be good. Like their, their solution was avoidance, a lifestyle of avoiding that which would be contagious and defiling. 
If I can stay away from enough contagions, if I can stay away from enough defilement, then I can stay clean. That's why they're constantly washing hands. That's why they're constantly moving away from the sick and the needy and the dead. They didn't wanna be defiled from the outside in. And so they have this lifestyle of avoiding bad things. That it led not to a life of freedom and joy, it led to a life of, of, of rule following and fear. And they were afraid of every corner that might defile, every person that might defile. And so they moved away from people and not towards them. And here comes Jesus and he crashes into that religious solution and says, that is not the case. What does Jesus do? Over and over and over, he's pressing straight in. He's touching the quarantined leper, right? He's sitting at tables with tax collectors and sinners. He holds the hands of a little dead girl. He, he fixes and, and touches a bleeding woman. And in those moments, he's doing all of those things, but he does not become defiled. For the first time in human history, the course of defilement was changed. I love the way that author uh, Betsy Child Howard says it. She says it like this, Jesus's cleanness was so deep, it was contagious. See, when he touched, his touch brought cleansing. When he showed up, his presence brought healing. He was the one. Every time uh, in history when something clean touched something dirty, it was the clean thing that became dirty until Jesus shows up. And the clean one touched the unclean and the unclean became clean. The living one touched the dead and the dead thing comes to life. Jesus changes the course of history. He says the solution isn't more hand washing. He says the solution is a changed heart. So he comes to bring that. Man, God is not avoiding you. He knows what's in your heart. You can't trick him by washing your hands. He's come and he sent his son to set you free so that you don't mistake washing hands for worshiping Jesus. He said, man, I wanna give you life and life to the full. He knows that your greatest need isn't cleaner hands, but it's a totally changed heart. And so that's why he's come. But the question remains, how in the world do we do that? God, how do you change our hearts? Now, now we could go to a hundred different places in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. Uh, I just wanna take us one place in the Old Testament. This, this, uh, these verses have been just really grabbing me this week. It's from Jeremiah chapter 17. And in it, the prophet is talking to the people and they're in a bad way. They had turned their hearts from God and they were losing their, uh, their, their way with him. So Jeremiah, the prophet comes and he, he sets them straight. Watch these words in verse one, I love this. It says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Jeremiah is a poet, right? He says this, it is with a point of diamond that sin is written on your heart. There's no erasing that. There's no delete button. There's no backspace button on that one. He says, with a pen of iron, sin is written on your heart. And then he's gonna contrast two types of people. He's gonna say, there's this type of people over here that trust in men and trust in themselves. And then there's people over here that they're gonna trust in God. So he's gonna contrast these two types of hearts. Watch what he says. Verse five says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. He said, cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes flesh his strength. That was the religious solution. 
Your heart is messed up. What is the solution? It's to trust in your ability. You see, Jesus wasn't condemning washing hands. He was condemning trusting in washing hands as the solution to your heart problem. So he comes and he says, look, those, those Pharisees, they're like uh, trees that would be rooted up. They're rootless shrubs in the desert. Think about it like this. Have you ever driven through West Texas and you see tumbleweed along the side of the road, right? Just blowing wherever the wind happens to be blowing. That's the image. That's the picture that we see. It's a rootless shrub that's not bearing fruit. But it's gonna contrast that kind of heart with this kind, verse, five, uh, verse seven. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain free and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Yeah, I love that text. The one who trusts in God, he's like a tree planted by a stream. This tree isn't fearing all right, this tree isn't anxious in the year of drought. I don't know what year they were talking about here, but I'm gonna nominate 2020 to be the year of drought. Like all of us are like, dude, 2020, it's a meme now. Like there's so many things going on and, and what are the themes of our hearts? Man, I think fear and anxiety. And here comes Jeremiah, he says, man, the one whose heart, who everything about you, you're cherishing, you're valuing, you're trusting. When you are trusting in the Lord, what happens in the year of drought? When everything else is drying up, when everything is dying around you, he says, you will not fear. You will not be anxious and you'll produce fruit so that others might taste and see that the Lord is good. You know why a tree produces fruit? Not so that it consumes it for its own nourishment. A tree produces fruit so that others might be nourished. He's saying that's what happens with the heart that trusts God. In the year of drought, it's not fear or anxiety, but nourishing that others might taste and see that the Lord is good. So here's the question. Why in the world would somebody say, hey, I wanna be a rootless desert shrub, not the, the fear-free, anxiety-free, fruit-bearing tree? Right? Those are the options. Like, why would any of us say that, that, that I wanna be this guy? Well, because Jeremiah is gonna tell us in verse 10. We read it earlier, but let's read it again. It says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can trust it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can trust it? How do I even know what's going on in my heart? My heart is deceiving me. When the things that I want, the things that I'm trusting in, uh, the, the scripture says, hey, you've got a heart problem. The things that you are valuing and trusting in, there's an issue even in that. And here's the revelation that my hope for us would be this, is that, that our heart is, is, is worse than we even imagined. But at the very same time, God's grace is more wonderful than we could have ever, ever thought. That that revelation is coming to us. And so there I was, 15 year old, sitting on a boulder, hearing the pool party going on, looking out over the Buena Vista Valley. And the question that I'm asking is, God, if this is true, God, if my heart is broken because of sin, what in the world, what do I do? And we find the answer to that in verse 14, Jeremiah continues and hear his prayer. It says, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for you are my praise. God, your word says that my heart is deceitful. 
Would you transform my heart with truth? God, your word says that my heart is evil. Would you transform my heart with your love? God, your word says that my heart is darkened. Would you transform my heart with your light? I can't change my own heart. I can't do heart surgery on myself. Just like a tree can't plant itself by the stream, I can't change my own heart. But guys, here is the, the good news for us is that there's no brokenness in your heart that the Lord of your heart cannot fix. There's no brokenness in your heart that the Lord of your heart cannot fix. And so what do we do, man? I love Romans chapter 10, verse eight and nine. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A heart that believes is a mouth that confesses. A heart that believes in the resurrection of Jesus leads to a mouth that confesses the Lordship of Jesus. Man, how's your heart? Church, how, how's your heart? What are you cherishing in? What are you valuing in? What are you trusting in? In a season of uncertainty, in a politically charged season, in a season where we're avoiding everything out there, what is it that we find ourselves trusting in? Is it our own ability to make our hearts right? Or are we saying, God, heal my broken heart and it will be healed. Save my broken life and it will be saved. Why? Because Lord, you, you are my praise. You are my hope. You are what I cherish. You are what I value. You are what I trust in. Oh, my hope is that we would change our hearts, allow God to change our hearts, that what comes out of the mouth is the confession of the Lordship of Jesus because we believe in our heart and the resurrection of Jesus. So now we get to do just that. We get to allow our mouths to confess as we sing, we sing back to Him. The change in our hearts is gonna lead to praise. Why? Because He is our praise. So as we sing this, my hope for you, church, whether you sing out loud or even just somewhere in your hearts, you might say, God, you are my trust. You are my hope. You are what I value. Would you change my heart so that my praise might change and be focused to you? Let me pray for us. God, would you do just that? God, where fear is reigning, would you bring peace? Lord, where anxiety is taking root in our heart, would you uproot it? and in its place, put trust in you. So I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those hearing these words, your words, God, that they might have a heart that trusts and cherishes and values you so that what comes out of their mouths and off of their keyboards and out of their lives would be praise and trust and worship, God, because you're worthy of it. So Lord, change our hearts, be our praise, and be honored with our lips. And we ask that in Christ's name, amen.